Bible Things, episode number six, Fighting Fair, part four. Hello and welcome to our final part in our four-part series of Fighting Fair. I am your host, Michael. And I'm his trusty sidekick, Leanna. Speaking of kick. Hey, nice. Sorry, it just spontaneously brought forth the urge. I think that leads us into the first part of our final lesson here on this, picking the right place and time to have a conflict. It's always the right time and place to have conflict. If you say so. That's why it happens everywhere. (laughs) There really is a right time and a wrong time and a right place and a wrong place. And we want to make sure that we understand this because sometimes our anger says it's right now. Right now is the right time and the right place. But the logical side, the brain should say, no, idiot, you're going to make this worse. Let's do this somewhere else. So what are the worst places to have conflict? Well, one of them is going to be in front of the TV or cell phone or computer. So basically when someone is distracted, don't start into them then. They're just going to ignore you. Another area that is not the right place would be in front of the kids. Now, I will say that this is partly true. Because we do need to set an example. If your children never see you have healthy conflict, then they will grow up assuming having conflict is wrong. So they'll try to avoid it, which leads them back into the whole issue of not fighting fair. But you need to make sure that the conflict you do happen to have isn't related to them. They also need to see the resolution to this conflict, not just having the conflict. They've got to see how you resolve it so that they can be left with a proper example of how to have and resolve conflict. You also should not do conflict in public. Boy, that makes people feel so uncomfortable to hear someone fussing and carrying on to each other. I am not putting up with this anymore. Putting up with what? I I can't talk to people. I am out of luck. Oh, come on. What? Because I have a little conversation with somebody. Oh, my goodness. At church, you can have that happen. And it's just like, oh, you almost want to die inside. You're so embarrassed and wondering, okay, now what are others thinking? Especially if you have visitors. Oh, it's just the worst. So don't do that. Don't do that. That's, that's considered public. Don't do that. Um, another one would be in transit. So when you're in a car, that can be a great opportunity to have discussion. It's not a good opportunity to have conflict. It seems that on the way to church just always works out to be the best time to have conflict. And it's the worst time to have conflict because by the time you get to church, more than likely, you're already wore out and you now don't really want to be in church. So be very careful and be on guard and and try to watch those trigger words and those trigger things that will spark the conflict. You also do not want to have conflict from different rooms. This will force you to yell at one another, even if you're not really meaning to yell. So you'll be yelling at each other. I mean, you know, if you want the neighbors to hear what you're talking about, go for it. You know, that's the best way to get help is to go ahead and shout it to the world. We want everyone to know our business. So be sure to do it in public, in front of everybody. Just do it all wrong. And trust me, everyone will know. (laughs) You know, I think another wrong and worst place to have conflict would be over social media. That is a very deceptive system because you assume 
you can say what you want. You have this feeling of uh, security. You're behind this computer screen. Nobody's actually looking at you in the face. So you share more than you normally would. A lot of people feel a little more emboldened to share. All that typically does is allow you the opportunity to say more than you should. The Bible even speaks against us sharing too much. As it says in Proverbs 29 and 11, A fool uttereth all his mind, but a wise man keepeth it in till afterwards. So it's like Facebook and other social media platforms are just, they, they prime you to share all your mind. And the Bible says if you do that, you're a fool. So don't be a fool. Don't do that. Be careful what you share on social media and don't use it as a way for conflict. In fact, I would recommend you avoid chatting and instant messaging as much as possible, which I know that we often rely on that because it's not as invasive, I suppose. It's not as, it's almost not as personal because you don't have to face them to have the conversation. But you now have to properly read everything that they're telling you. If you're mad at them, you're going to read into what they're saying with anger or the wrong filter, basically. You're going to. No, he didn't. That's right. So you may say something completely innocent and they're going to read into it as if you just yelled it at them with some attitude because that's how they're envisioning this right now because you're in conflict. You have to read into it and guess all their emotion, all their insinuations, everything. So it's a really, really unwise place to do that. And it usually causes more harm than good. So that would be another place to be very careful with. So what are the worst times? We discussed places. Now, what are the worst times to have conflict? Just before sleep. Oh, that's the perfect time because you're going to go to sleep and you can just forget about it all. Yeah, it's a perfect time if you want somebody to stay up all night. Just before intimacy. On the way to church, like we were talking about earlier. When you're leaving for work. Oh, you're going to have a great day, honey. Just get those last few arguments in. Get those last few points in before they walk out to make sure they know what's what. And then hand them their coffee and smile and say, I love you. And they'll be scared to drink it all day. That's pretty bad. I've never been scared to drink the coffee that you make me, but I might need to be now. <laughs> you like watching those murder mystery shows. That's... That's scary. I start growing a bunch of herbs, you know, to watch out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And the last one here is when you've just stepped in the door. Oh, yeah. That's exactly what you want to be greeted with. As <laughs> soon as you walk in the door from work. No, oh, hi, honey. I'm home. <laughs> uh, well, now listen. Proverbs fifteen twenty eight to kind of sum this little part up here. The heart of the righteous studieth to answer. But the mouth of the wicked poureth out evil things. So, you know, many conflicts are doomed from the start because they are often started in the worst place at the worst times. So this complicates the conflict by adding this element of poor timing to it. So be careful. Now, I want to put a little disclaimer in here once again. I know we mentioned it when we first started. A great deal of this uh, material has either been sourced or um, the idea has been reapplied in our lesson from the book Fight Fair by Tim and Joy Downs. We highly recommend this book. Please go buy the book and read it. There's so much in here that we don't cover 
that will be a blessing to you, I believe. So please go and buy that book. And we also want to make sure we mention that just in case they ever listen and they recognize some of this material. I want to make sure that the source has been um, notified, cited. Yeah, there you go. We have cited it. Okay. So as we're moving along here, we have 10 relationship. We have 10 reasons here why relationship difficulties linger. Why is it that you seem to have the same conflict over the same things? Number one is some people want to avoid the difficult feelings that could arise in confrontation. Just like we mentioned earlier, while people often use social media or screens or something else, anything else that avoids them having to look at the person because that introduces confrontation. Now, there's some element still with any kind of communication but over a screen is easier to just simply shut the screen off, put it down, and then you come back to it when you feel like it. When you're in person, you don't have that kind of control. The second reason is that some people take comfort in their difficulties by complaining to others about their problems. They get sympathy that way, right? Misery loves company. Do not air your dirty laundry to everybody else or on social media. There are some things that just have no business being out there. I think we do that because. When we get someone like a friend who's on our side, they agree with what we say. It makes us feel good and feel justified for the feelings that we currently have. So why would we want to let them go? They're right. That's what we feel. So be careful with that as well. Number three, not resolving the difficulty is a way of punishing the other person. I guess if you feel like you're right and they're wrong and you're not willing to address it any other way by not addressing it, you continue to, quote, prove that you're right. Just understand that's also manipulation. Absolutely. I've had that done to me before. You know, if somebody blocks you from being able to apologize or to be able to make restitution, they're, they're basically punishing the other person by not being willing to resolve this. The fourth reason is discord and disharmony may be preferable to no relationship at all. A bad relationship is still a relationship. That's why a lot of people stay in very dangerous and very difficult relationships is because they're afraid of being alone. They'd rather have the abuse or the hurt than be alone. Number five is refusing to reconcile is a way to keep the relationship on one's own terms and remain in control. That is another one that's similar to number three about not resolving as a way of punishing the other person. When you have an issue with not wanting to lose control, if you don't reconcile, you feel you remain in control. That is amazing. I'm sorry. I don't, I'm thinking back as I'm reading through these the situations I've encountered. And I'm like, wow, I didn't realize that it's been a little bit since I've read this book. And I, since I've read this book, I've had, I have experienced some of these things with other individuals that I did not recognize at the time. But as I'm reading this, I'm now recognizing it. And wow, it is it's amazing. Number six, for some people, negative feelings are so familiar that they hold on to anger and shame just to feel alive. You know, you can feel bad for so long that feeling bad starts to feel good. That's, that's a very dangerous place to get into because you'll want to do more bad to feel good. And that's, that's the opposite of what a Christian should be. And number seven is some people feel that they deserve to suffer and be unhappy. Now, this is definitely a problem of self-esteem and having any confidence, and they just feel they're the worst already, so this is what they deserve. 
It's a good thing Christ didn't look at us and say that. That's right. Amen. Number eight, not reconciling allows some people to feel superior. The person wronged gets to feel righteous while the perpetrator is seen as the villain. This goes back to control and manipulation. Wow. Number nine, some people are too proud to reconcile. Reconciling might require them to admit that they have also contributed to the difficulty. Humble pie. And number 10, people see no hope of reconciling. I would say this is basically when you've, tr- you've attempted to reconcile, you've attempted to fix it over and over and over, but you keep doing it wrong. Wrong place, wrong time, wrong reasons, all of that stuff we've talked about. You're not fighting fair, you're not fighting the right way, but you've been trying. And so you finally end up in this situation where you feel hopeless because you've tried and it doesn't work. Well, it, you're not doing it right. Or sometimes it's that only one side is truly trying. And the other side is blocking. We, you know, we went through some of those with control and manipulation. If one side's trying to reconcile and the other side won't allow it, then you're going to force the other side to give up. Now, these 10 reasons why relationship difficulties linger is actually adapted from the book by Mark Rosen. Thank you for being such a pain. Are you going to say it now? Yes. Thank you for being such a pain. I was waiting on it. Yay! I had no idea what you were referring to, but I was successful anyway. (laughs) The next thing we have down here that we want to discuss with you guys is there's five different things here for men and for women as to why they get angry. So anger is a major reason why we can't resolve conflict. And often we think conflict is because of anger, but actually it's separate from anger. Conflict is something different. Anger is basically what bubbles up to the top when conflict is triggered and it gets in the way. So the five reasons women get angry at their husbands is lack of caring. You know, the Bible talks about the woman being the weaker vessel. This is not because she is weak. Think of it like a rose and a baseball. The man is the baseball. The woman is the rose. In order to keep the rose intact, you must handle it carefully. The wife is a prized possession, and she needs to feel cared for. Right. Weaker doesn't mean less valuable or in some way not as good, not not as strong. What it means Inferior. Right. What it means is that she needs to be handled differently. That's what it's referring to. Just like if you were you know, everybody has to hold a glass if they want to use it. But when you're holding an expensive glass, you ba- you basically you hold it more carefully and more consciously so that you don't accidentally drop it or tip it over and break it. So that's kind of the concept here. Number two is lack of appreciation. And number three is selfishness. Number four is passivity or laziness. And number five is poor listening habits. As women getting angry at their husbands, you can look at this list and realize that a lot of it is coming from the perspective of a man's willingness to do things for the wife. And that is going back to the reflection of loving your spouse. Now, in the Bible, in Ephesians, there's that whole section about how a man loves his his wife as his own body. But what does it reference? It references nourishing and cherishing his own body. So the idea there is that a man is supposed to nourish and cherisheth his wife and this marriage, which implies you take care of it. That in the sense of your body, you feed your body, you take care of your body. If you get hurt, you try to help your body heal or to feel better. That's the cherishing part. 
and the nourishing would be the food. So in the same sense, you're doing something continually to take care of yourself. The implication is that you should be doing something for your wife in the sense of, uh, you know, you're a provider. So you go and you work and you try to provide for the house. Sometimes the wife may make more income. That's fine. But the point is that the husband must still provide for his household. Five reasons men get angry at their wives. Number one is blame or fault finding. Don't be a nag. Reason number two, lack of respect. I want to point out that that is a huge issue for guys. Women often disrespect their husbands unintentionally. And you really won't realize that you're doing it. And the husband won't even always realize you're doing it until your husband suddenly feels conflicted. He feels uh, something isn't right and he'll start to get upset. It took me a lot of years to realize that my reactions at times where I was frustrated or I retaliated, it was actually looking back and realizing that in certain places I felt disrespected. Now, I would highly encourage you all to go out and read the book about the five love languages, and we will discuss that on another episode at some point soon. But it's basically the premise of learning the primary way that you show love. And it's stuff like uh, words of affirmation, not just compliments, but actually speaking things that build them up or affirm them. Acts of service is another one. So you go out of your way to do things to help them or to see about them or to think about them. So what we have learned after we've gone through these, we've taken the little test, we've determined what ours is, what it allowed me to realize is that as important or sometimes maybe even more important than knowing how to show love, at least on the initial side of resolving conflict, you need to realize what their love language is to realize the opposite causes resentment, like it's an attack. So if your love language is acts of service, when they ignore you, when they don't do something that you feel that they're supposed to do or said they would do, or they forget about you in some way, things like that become disrespectful to them. They feel rejected, okay? So you need to find your love language and realize that if they're doing the opposite of whatever that love language is, it's a sign of rejection to them, and they are going to retaliate. So in a marriage, when there's unresolved conflict, I pretty much promise you that the love language is not only not being met, but it's actually being worked against them. They're, whatever it is, it's being done in the opposite, and it's coming across as rejections and attacks, which happens a lot and is unintentional. As Leanna and I have gone through a lot of this and discussed it, we realize a lot of the time it's very unintentional. We, had no, we, we weren't trying to hurt each other, but we just kept doing it, and we finally realized why. So... I would highly recommend learning that because respect on both sides is necessary. And when you do something that works against their primary love language, you are rejecting them and causing disrespect towards them. And it will hurt and it will cause them to retaliate against you. But be especially careful of this for the husbands. And I say that because the husbands are meant to be reverenced in Scripture. That's, that's the way the scripture bears it out. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Both are signs of love and consideration, 
but it's just the way it's considered because of the chain of authority that God established. Number three is dwelling on a point. The next one is demanding. And the last one is controlling. Those are the five reasons that men get angry at their wives. Because anger can have such devastating consequences, we come to think of it as inherently evil. But anger in and of itself is actually not wrong. In fact, it's a God-given emotion. If you read through the Bible, you will find that God himself gets angry. In the perfect character of God, anger always serves one of two purposes, either to protest what is evil or to protect what is good. Fallen human beings tend to get this backwards. Our anger often serves to protest what is good and protect what is evil. The problem is not anger itself, but the way that we use it. Now, don't translate hurt into anger. Men are taught to show anger in place of other emotions like fear, worry, insecurity, or getting your feelings hurt. This makes men overly mean and aggressive and hard to understand what's really going on. So when men get hurt, don't change that into anger because we lash back out when we do that. And for a woman, when you let that hurt turn into anger, it turns into resentment and bitterness. Don't let those seeds get planted. In Ephesians 4 and 26, we're told, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Verse 27 says, neither give place to the devil. It's okay to recognize when you're getting angry to avoid it. We need to recognize those feelings being stirred and realize, you know what? I just need to step away for a little while before I do or say something that I'll have to apologize for later or will regret. Be self-aware or pay attention to yourself. It's important to follow scripture and try to address the source of the anger with the person who is causing it. Remember, be ye angry and sin not. Now we want to take a moment to address what your style of conflict actually is. And from this book, they state that there are five basic styles of conflict. The first one is non-assertive. This is when you're unable or unwilling to express thoughts or feelings. The next one is directly aggressive. Lashes out through attacks on spouse's character competence, or appearance. The next is passive-aggressive. You express hostility in a disguised, underhanded manner to undermine and frustrate. That's manipulation. The next is indirect. Prefers to convey messages through hinting, sarcasm, humor, or nonverbal expressions like a heavy sigh. (sighs) The next one is assertive. Attempts to express thoughts and feelings clearly and directly and allows their partner to express the same in return. Now, the reason for your conflict style? Well, let me ask you a question. How was conflict handled in your family? That's a great deal of why you do what you do. When we talk about your normals, we've talked about that a good bit. And your normals are basically your upbringing. You're the things that you consider as normal to do or be. And in conflict, there's a normal way of doing conflict that you're raised with. You may have to unlearn. Maybe you did have a good source of reference for conflict. Maybe your parents had it figured out by the time you came along, 
and so you witness conflict being handled properly. But if you did not, you need to recognize what these are because you need to adjust these things. They're not okay. Not all of them. Along with these, we want to quickly just mention to you an example of each of these. Something you may have heard or said yourself. For non-assertive, you would hear, Okay, fine. I'm sorry. I blew it. Whatever. Do we really need to go into all of this? For directly aggressive, you might hear something like, That's just stupid. You're too easy on the kids. You're a lousy mother. For passive-aggressive, did that make you angry? Oh, I'm sorry. I had no idea that you'd be so sensitive about it. Someone who has an indirect conflict style might say something like, It would be nice to have a little help around here. Not that anyone cares. Amen, sister. And the last one is assertive, number five we've talked about. Um, do you have a minute? Something is bothering me, and I'd like to talk it over with you. Now, the fifth style of conflict, or assertive, is by far the most productive. Don't confuse assertive with aggressive. Assertive means bold or confident, while aggressive implies harshness or hostility. The assertive communicator is not blunt, rude, or uncaring. They are simply bold about engaging their partner and seeking a resolution that will satisfy them both. Foul! Since a woman tends to pick up nonverbal cues quickly, she often assumes that her husband does too, but he often doesn't. Don't be indirect. Don't expect him to connect the dots and then become angry with him when he doesn't. You know, it's so many times us women, we're, we're sitting over there and we might have our arms crossed and, oh, we're mad or maybe we're, you know, mad cleaning or doing the things that we do when we're mad. And our husbands are like, what did I do? You don't know. You can't tell me you don't know. Well, no, they, they really don't know because they're not inside your head. That's a scary place. So be direct, you know, but do it respectfully. Well, you didn't know. Take a step back. Okay, well, this is what happened, and this is how it came across. Is this really what's going on? Talk it out. Talk is a four-letter word that is not a four-letter word. You know, through this course, we've, we've been talking about what we argue about is really not what the problem is. So what are some examples of things that we might disagree about that are the root cause of the argument? When we fight about spending or saving like, and parenting differences even, that could actually be about security. There's a, a level of security that you're arguing about. So in-law disputes and looking at the opposite sex, when you're arguing about those things, you're really arguing about loyalty. Lending time and money, obeying traffic laws even. When, you just, when you're arguing about these things, it could be about responsibility. If you argue about passivity or avoiding disagreements, you're really arguing about caring. And when you're arguing about household chores or planning ahead, there could be an argument about order taking place. Social activities and use of leisure time can really be about openness. And decision-making and types of communication or just communication in general could actually just be about connection. So these are areas that you might be able to look at and say and realize there's a deeper issue being discussed that if you don't recognize it, 
you may never actually get it resolved. Things like that we want to watch for and, and try to realize, again, it's about fighting fair, which means you understand the terms of the conflict. If you don't understand the terms, you won't fight fair. And, you know, that's a good list to be able to go through with your spouse later when you have time to sit down and say, okay, what areas do we argue about? You know, in in this area, the ones that you choose, is it really about what we're saying on the surface or is there a deeper issue so that you can resolve that conflict? Because that's the whole point is to get it resolved, not let it fester, not let it grow underneath the surface. It's got to be weeded out and gotten rid of so that you can increase in your marriage. Now, as we conclude up this whole series, we want to start focusing a little bit more on the positives of this and how do you get out of it and where do you go from here, basically. And so we want to emphasize that when you're in conflict, make sure that you're speaking to heal, not to wound. So even in conflict, we need to be willing to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, and I love you. Proverbs 12 and 18 says, There is that speaketh like the piercing of a sword, but the tongue of the wise is health. In Ephesians 4 and 29, we are warned, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And Proverbs 12 and 25 says, Heaviness in the heart of man maketh it stoop, but a good word maketh it glad. In other words, you feel depressed with a hard thing and you'll feel lifted up with a good. So be careful when you're in conflict. If you're using words that are corrupting or tearing down or destroying, you will not resolve the conflict. You will only make it worse or create new ones. A lot of our conflict that we're facing today were created in conflict we were having previously. So we have all this compounding conflict going on because we are not doing it right. Well, we minimize conflict when we actively choose to bless one another in marriage. You know, you pointed out with our last couples retreat that we should be more proficient in loving than in making restitution. Yes, I, I believe that that is true because I think that it's great that we are good at making restitution or being able to say, I'm sorry, but I think it's better if we can get to a point to where we have to do that less often. We should always be willing to because we are, we are human. But I believe it's healthier for you to have to do that less and less because you're simply not engaging in things where you realize I was wrong and I have to make an apology. And I don't mean, again, to say that you should get to where you don't have to apologize. We're saying the conflict should simply not be there. If it's being resolved, you are losing it. It's going away. You have less of it. Well, and two, when you have less of the conflict, your spouse is going to be retrained, so to speak, to not think evil of you. Oh, okay, well, this isn't normally how this would happen instead of, whoa, they always do this, so it's got to mean this. And that's a good point. Our filter is based off of experiences and our current understanding of how they are. So that, and when we talk about in our uh, previous episode about let love be blind and there being a filter, well, how do you get that filter? You know, you start out with a filter with all roses. That's why you can never see fault when you're in that dating. But 
once you've been with them for a while, you see their faults, and then you have experiences where you've been let down, expectations haven't been met, disrespects have been exchanged, that filter begins to adjust. And now you begin to read into things based on those experiences. That has to be adjusted back when you've had so much conflict that you're just your your marriage is falling apart. When we have the wrong kind of conflict, we're going to have the wrong kind of filters. So to fix that, we have to correct the conflict and we have to correct the interactions that we're having. So how do we bless our spouse instead of insult them? Well, blessing your spouse begins by cultivating a new and I would say proper attitude. I believe it also involves choosing to give a blessing instead of an insult. That choosing is important. See, choosing is void of emotion. You're doing what logically needs to be done in this situation. So when you're angry and you may want to to do something out of that anger, instead you use wisdom, you withdraw for a little bit, and you try to at least show some kind of an appreciation. Maybe they made your food the wrong way. So instead of getting angry about it, you say, well, thank you for trying or thank you for, you know, making this for me. However, you know, choosing is, is the key word there. It's no different than choosing to walk after the spirit than after the flesh. It's the same concept there. You have to make a choice. It's kind of like a double helix, right? When you're looking at the DNA strand, you have a strand on each side and ever so often it comes to a cross point. And that's where you have to choose. Am I going to stay walking after the Spirit and choose to give a blessing and be a blessing? Or am I going to jump on this other path here and go down the slippery slope of walking after the flesh? And a reminder here that blessing your spouse follows the example of Jesus. Remember, we are supposed to be peacemakers. That's in everything that we do in life as well as in our marriage. And I don't mean to be an enabler and assume that they did no wrong, but somebody has got to initiate the bridge back to communication. Somebody's got to be willing to step up and try to apologize so that the walls can come down and you can actually discuss something. So be a peacemaker in these moments. And chances are there was probably wrong on both sides. That's usually the case. So just know that going in. Nobody is perfect here in our marriages. You know, we're still learning. You should never stop learning. So the last thing we're going to discuss with you guys as we finish up this series all together is how to conflict properly. We've been talking all this time about how to do it wrong. We want to give you kind of a rundown of how to do it properly. So the first thing you need to do is to warm up and stretch. So if I stretch my arm far enough is it going to hit you in the face that's not stretch that's not, well that's not the stretch i'm referring to well then what are you talking about all right well you need to first pray and submit to the lord that's number one as i've often commented on prayer doesn't resolve all your conflicts but it does condition you or put you in the condition to be able to resolve conflicts prayer does change things but mostly it changes you so Make sure that you are prayed up and you're considering yourself as well, such as it says in Galatians chapter 6. Consider yourself also. 
It's important also to understand that the discussions are necessary, but they don't have to lead to more arguments and unsettled hurts. Right. So you want to be aware of, be self-aware and understand when you are building up too much anger or tension. Be able to walk away for a time if needed and be willing to let them. But do not let that time be so long that everything just kind of subsides to the point you don't want to address it anymore. That did not resolve the conflict. All that did was let the emotion flow away. So number three in our steps to how to conflict properly is avoid starting out with blaming them or character attacks. Try to avoid starting with these deadly phrases or openings. You always. You never. Well, why can't you just? You're not listening. You just don't get it. What? This again? You have to understand. How long is this going to take? Everyone else? Why didn't you? You should have or could have. You make me. Do not start your conflict out with those kinds of accusational or derogatory comments or insinuations because that's what a lot of those things are. You're automatically assuming evil with those comments. When you do that, you are adding fuel to the fire. Right. You you are not helping them to see clearly. Well, you're helping them to see very clearly that you are their enemy and now they're going to attack. <laughs> so don't do that. Number four in our little steps here is plan opening remarks. Think about this. Don't just say what comes to mind Stop and actually consider, okay, I'm really upset or I have a problem, but what can I say so I don't cause more conflict? You know, stop for a minute and pray, Lord, what is going to be edifying here? So many times, you know, we would like to just say the first thing that comes to mind. And especially if you are talking over text, you may see the person start typing and then they stop typing because they've erased it all. And then they start again and they stop again. And then finally they end up with a response that is less um, venomous. So take that time, step back and do that in your head. You know, when you're having this face-to-face conflict, don't just let the first response fly. So as the receiver in the conflict, the one receiving, understand that they need to talk. But do it right and actively listen. As the speaker, understand that they are trying to listen. So try not to mask what you need to say or speak too vaguely. So often we try not, we we want to address it, but we don't really want to address it. So we try to hint, we try to beat around the bush, we try to get to our point without actually saying our point. And all that usually does is lead to a great deal of misunderstanding. I know I've tried this, and it's a very passive approach. And all it did was just cause more assumption of, you know, wrongdoing or assumption of thinking wrong or thinking evil or whatever. It just created more conflict. So don't do that. Don't be rude or mean, but try to be as direct and simple. I will also add, I have learned, the more you try to explain something, the less likely they're actually going to understand you. So do your best to think ahead. So the fifth step is state the case or the meat of the issue, but with compassion. So remember, we are working with them, not against them. It's important to focus 
on these things, one issue at a time, rather than many issues. Focus on the problem, not the person. Focus on the behavior, not character. Focus on specifics, not generalizations. Stick to the facts, not judgment of motive. Opinions are very tricky, people. Focus on I statements. I did. I have done. Not you statements. Focus on understanding, not keeping score of who's winning or losing. And that judgment of motive thing goes back to thinking or assuming evil. (laughs) We do that quite a lot. Now, we must be willing, the next step, we must be willing to apologize and forgive. So if we can't properly and genuinely convey these, the conflict isn't resolved. If you can't genuinely say, I'm sorry, if you discuss the conflict, but don't actually exchange an apology, you didn't resolve anything. All you did was discuss it. You may have discussed it until the feelings went away, but you did not resolve it. Now, the offender needs to seek forgiveness. Now, this is a situation where it's kind of an obvious one-sided problem. One person did something to cause conflict. Sometimes you'll have conflict and both parties are guilty and you don't really know for sure what happened. But in this situation, when you know there is an offender, the initial one who started it, they need to begin by admitting to God and their self that they were wrong. But don't forget to go back to your spouse and also ask for their forgiveness too. That's right. You can't just go pray it off and ask God to forgive you and then again assume the conflict between you and your spouse is also now resolved. God doesn't go down and say, oh, by the way, he apologized to me, so you're good now. No, you've got to tell them also. When you're discussing these things and trying to apologize, be specific. I am sorry that I... I apologize for doing thus and so. Why? Because it forces you to accept responsibility and have accountability for what you've done. Be willing to accept responsibility for the consequences as well. And you need to consider and be willing to address the attitudes and desires that may have led to the offense. So humbly seek forgiveness. And the offended party needs to grant forgiveness. And we want to talk about what forgiveness is and what it isn't real quick. Forgiveness is not pretending that it didn't happen. Forgiveness is not conditional, forgetting, and it's not an automatic cure for the hurt. That's a really big one, and that's really important to remember. But forgiveness is, first and foremost, a choice to set your spouse free from the debt of their offense. It is also an attitude of letting go of resentment and vengeance. Vengeance belongs to God, not us. Marriage is not about getting even. The first step toward rebuilding trust is what true forgiveness is about. And lastly, it is an act of obedience to God. Now, I just want to point out real quick on the true forgiveness is not forgetting. Too often you are told it's forgive and forget. Now, I want to be clear. The scripture talks about, at one point, forgetting those things that are behind. But did you know it also talks about, in another point, not forgetting those things that we have been saved from? The point is that you do need to forgive yourself and be willing to let go of the hurt and the anger and the things that would stir you up and, you know, actually grant that forgiveness. 
but you do not necessarily need to forget in the sense that it never actually happened because you know experience does build your character but it also keeps you in line you remember hey when i did this this was the reaction this was what happened i need to make sure i don't repeat those steps so we're not talking about remembering all these things to harbor resentment or to keep yourself beat down it's a remembering so that you're learning from your mistakes if you forget the mistakes you made you will repeat them so there is an element of this that you do need to remember you don't have to forget something to be able to forgive someone. Just don't harbor it against them. Step seven is remind them of your love and commitment. So pray to make sure your heart is in the right place. And remember that every conflict should begin and end with an expression of love and commitment. No one wants to feel like they're that one argument away from their spouse just walking out the door and staying gone forever. It's pretty amazing what just simply expressing I love you can do even in the middle of a conflict. Like it it almost like it just kind of pacifies just a little because you realize we are trying to to do this together. We are a team. They do still care about me. I'm not trying to, you know, fend for myself and survive until the last minute. I'm actually trying to resolve this with them. So do try to do that. And the last step here that we have for you guys is the follow-through. Take action that is needed to heal. Be willing to change where needed. And remember that you're supposed to respond to them and don't react. Build your spouse up instead of tearing them down. And you need to be able to receive constructive criticism. If you're in the habit of attacking your spouse, constructive criticism will also be seen as an attack. But if you are not in the habit of attacking your spouse, then when it comes time for constructive criticism, it won't be assumed evil like it did before. So just remember that as well as when you're doing the follow through, when you're finally done, the conflict has been discussed, forgiveness has taken place. You got to go somewhere from there. You can't just say, okay, well, you know, it didn't happen. No, it happened. And there's going to be times, especially if the conflict was serious, you're going to have to, in a way, prove yourself now by whatever's necessary. Uh, I even had someone recently ask me, you know, how do you make restitution in a marriage? And my thought was, one of the things that you must do is you must go above and beyond to prove that you are sorry for what you've done. It's like when we're when we repent. To the Lord. The Bible talks about repenting and turning from your sin. Well, you don't just repent and get up and go back into sin. You've got to take an extreme approach and do everything you can to avoid sin or even avoid the appearance of sin, the scripture says. That's an extreme reaction. That's going above and beyond because you're trying very hard to make sure you don't do the things that you just said, I'm sorry for doing and I don't want to do anymore right? It's the same concept in marriage or in any relationship. When you've made the restitution, when you've had the apology, when forgiveness has been done, you must now go above and beyond to make sure that everything is understood and everybody is on the same level. That's how you build trust. 
There's that song. I love the reference, the beginning uh, verse, and keep on the firing line. It's an old hymnal. It says that God can only use a soldier he can trust. Well, you have to prove yourself to be considered trustworthy. God told Abraham, I know him, and I know he'll lead his family. Therefore, I'm going to tell him what I'm going to do. God trusted Abraham, not just because he chose Abraham, but because Abraham proved himself to God. We must have the same understanding toward one another. If we want their trust to be regained in whatever it is that it was lost over, we must go out of our way and do whatever's necessary within reason to rebuild that trust to prove to them that we care and that we want to please them. So, and remember, if you're not fighting fair. Wait, it's over? We're done? It doesn't have to be. Oh, so I can use my boxing gloves? Because, like, I wanted to be the next Rocky, you know? Only maybe I should call myself Rocket since I'm a girl. Oh, goodness. What step are we on? Because I've got to go. i got to remember here. I'm, I'm about to be out of step in this I conflict. Think we, I think we need to just go with the steps of y'all pray for him. <laughs> Thank y'all for listening to this series on Fighting Fair. We hope that it was a blessing to you. Remember to get these wonderful books that we've referenced here including the Bible. (laughs) Make sure you're reading the Bible as well. And pray, 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 and God will help you to resolve these things. But remember, you have a responsibility for your relationship. It's not just on God. You can't just pray and make it all better. You have to work at what you truly care about and desire. So fight fair. 